Welcome to Yoga Unearth Me. Aiding Yoga as your remedy with Felicia Kears. Hello, beautiful people. I am so happy that I get to speak to you in the new year. How has your 2019 been like? For me, it has been an amount of money lessons, making me feel wobbly on my feet at times, and as much as it tries to steer me away from my aim, I keep allowing myself to continue on with that aim, although how much I bear can really, really put down or onto me. So 2019, I feel, was this moment of just a test, really, really testing you, how far you can be swayed and veered away from the initial faith and aim that comes from the heart. In 2020, I feel is potential to move past that and to grow. So as we began in this 2020, I want to really showcase to you the importance of yoga and what is yoga. What is it? Yoga in Sanskrit, when it translates into English, basically means union. It's a unified practice, a unified system that is of many and many of practices and together in this coherent joined forces create this beautiful awakening for you to connect to your higher self and even beyond that. And alongside that type of journey, you reap the benefits of all the physical benefits, of all the mental and emotional benefits. So yoga is a unified system of many, many, many practices. When you look into this modern age, and especially the, the Western world, we always think of yoga being purely physical and then the term namaste. That is not even close to what yoga is. Firstly, I want to pinpoint certain aspects of yoga that you may not even know about. Yoga comes from Hinduism. And much like Hinduism, it is a bundle of different philosophies and theories regarding the health of your body, the health of your mentality, and the health of your emotions and your spirit. And within it, you find deeper consensus of who you are beyond the walls of your limitations. So what is the system? Where did it come from? Well, Hinduism 
comes from the parts of Asia, such as India and Pakistan, but mostly India. The Sanskrit language, which is part of yoga, and sometimes we use the terminology of Sanskrit, was spoken in a certain part of India, I believe it was northern India and Pakistan. So let me introduce to you some things regarding yoga. So let's begin with simple terms that maybe you have heard about, but not quite sure to know what they are. So within the Vedic system is old scriptures of novelty in regards to certain philosophies. So this Vedic terms came about long before even Christianity. Now, as I say this, I'm not saying which religion is truer over others. To me, I believe that all religions speak of truth because they're all a human experience of sorts. And of course, every human experience is going to be so diverse from one another. So Vedic scriptures were that of almost a Bible, in a sense, a guideline for many, many gurus and people who practice yoga and who is of a yogi. These terms in these scriptures present a telling, a telling of possibility and probability for you to enhance your journey. Now, to some people, maybe to even yourself, some of these terms, these stories may not resonate with you. And that's okay. You don't have to resonate with every practice held within a system. Like I said, Hinduism and yoga is a variety of different philosophies and theories that we practice to really expand our perception and knowledge of not just ourselves, but the world around us where we can gather and understand what seems to be divided into a unified perception of love. Now there tells a great grand story of the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita. And this, among so many other grand stories, tell loosely, but in deep, deep context, about the war of our mind. So in the beginning, yoga was about the mind, the only asana, the physical posture, that was told of was actually the seated pose, so either lotus or the easy pose. The physicality of yoga didn't come to much time after. So in the beginning, all these, these philosophies and stories and these scriptures really focuses on the mental mind and how to defeat that war that we struggle with time to time, or even on a 24-7 hour basis. Basically, within the story, it tells about the story of 
Arjuna. I believe I'm saying that right or wrong. I'm really bad with my Sanskrit. And Lord Krishna. There happens to be a war between two sets of cousins. And Arjuna finds himself lost. He doesn't know which side to take. Because if he goes against his opponents, he will kill his own uncles, those that he loves. So Lord Krishna takes him on to this, this conversation. And through this conversation, he really kind of goes into these like the psychological attributes of what's going on with Arjuna's mind. What's preventing him? What's preventing him from choosing what is right? Or not even just right, but what will be, bring him peace? And what, what it all means to him and what he takes dearly to his heart. Through this practice and this conversation between Lord Krishna and Arjuna, there comes the consensus of many different mental practices. And lots of that's spoken in it is karma yoga. Karma yoga, you may have heard of it. You know the term, karma is a bitch. But this is based on what your actions are indicate the scenario and the experience. But through karma, you should not expect any reward, even if you are offering and doing right of action. Karma is not about possessiveness. It's not about wanting a reward. It's about just simply being and doing right. A right of action, a right of attitude. So through this storyline, this conversation, Arjuna begins to come to clarity of what Lord Krishna is speaking about. He's on a chariot. He's guided by horses. And he notices that his choice will allow his soul to either not steer in the direction or steer a direction. And the horses depict his senses. And your senses play a role into understanding how you go through that direction. So that's just a very, very, very short synopsis and meaning of the story, but there's so much more to it. I'm not even thinking I'm doing any justice to it at this point. But this is what I mean is that Yoga in the beginning was just mental understanding of how the mind works and how we work towards it to benefit ourselves and to really bring ourselves into deep connection with higher swords and wherever that may be for you. Now, prana, the life force, is spoken so highly about. And the reason being is that 
It is the igniting force that brings upon a deeper experience within your meditation, a deeper experience within your physical being, a deeper experience within your mental system. Pranayama is necessary the control of the prana, but being able to understand how you can allow it to really go deep within you and to truly influence it. And then vice versa, because we're merely reflections of the prana that we breathe in. Pranayama, there's two sections, the left being the Ida and the right being the Pingala. The Ida is the moon energy, the left side, and the right side is the Pingala energy, which is the sun energy. Now in the middle between both, they come together in the base of our body called Shushima. Again, I may be saying that wrong and I'm always bad with my Sanskrit. Now, the joining of the forces, the what is divided, becomes this unified source. So that's what prana is and that's why it's super important because when we focus into the balancing and harmonization of our breath, it truly truly, truly influences the state of our mind and our body. And when you put other practices joining along with our breath, it even enhances it. Now, before I get more into this, I'm going to introduce you to the four-point path. Now, the four-point path is divided into sections. But again, they're such a unified system that it doesn't have to be seen that way. So I loosely spoke about karma. So karma yoga is one of the four-point paths that make up the practice of yoga. There's that. And then there's bhakti yoga. Bhakti is the devotion you put into your practice to something of higher good to God, to your higher being, whatever it is that you believe in. This devotion is acted upon in curtain, musical invocation, the gospels, the prayers, the poems. And a lot of it is in Sanskrit, but doing it in English is no different. After bhakti, after bhakti, there is the term raja. Now, raja is what we know of, of Patanjali Sutra. So Patanjali was this sage. We don't even know who he truly was. There's all these different theories of who he was and the time period. All of this, again, is theorized of the time periods. 
Patanjali set up this system called the Eight Limbs of Yoga. Maybe you've heard of it, Ashtanga. But again, Ashtanga wasn't a practice of asana in the beginning. It wasn't purely a movement of body sequences. So what was Ashtanga? What was the Eight Limbs of Yoga? The Eight Limbs of Yoga was a system to truly, truly come to your psychological levels and physiological levels and to benefit both. So within the Eight Limbs of Yoga, I will point them out to you loosely. The first one is Yama. Second one is Niyama. Third one is Asana, which is physical postures. Third one is Pranayama. Then there's concentration. There's Dhyana, such as meditation. The removing of senses and Samadhi which is all blissful, the all-supreme experience. These eight limbs of yoga are part of Raja Yoga. And then there is the last four-point path, which I always speak this so badly, like I cannot pronounce it. Janata. J-N-A-N-A. Now, this is a practice that really, really allows you to make much reflection and analyzation. This is the part of the journey where we kind of delve into all the philosophies and theories and we use our mind, but with consciousness rather than your ego. And it comes into reflection, it comes into contemplation, it comes into settling your mind to look at the spectrum of thoughts rather than limited thought and come to some point of knowing what it all means to you, this whole practice and what you're understanding your experience. So again, for the most part of this four-point path, it's a lot of the mental game. One being faith and the other indicating many different parcels of your practice regarding the different sheaths and the different layers of you. Now within this, through all these systems of what yoga is and even through Hinduism, there are, I believe, 12 different systems of schools of thought. Half of them are atheist, and the other half is theist. Now, these different systems of schools don't disregard one another in a sense. It's allowing you to expand your understanding of all these different theories and come to conclusion of what is your own. That's why it's so beautiful about yoga, is that when you start practicing it and understand the deep reflections of it and understand 
the deeper revelations behind it and how everything coexists with one another. You become so widely involved in any other study of philosophy and theory without taking it personally, without taking offense to it. It teaches you to be super open to these things, to allow yourself to expand your knowledge, your hearing, and your expressions. And the more it grows, the more we evolve. Yoga is about transformation. It's about evolving from one state to another. Now, again, as I'm talking about yoga, I'm not even being fully clear enough, I don't think. And not even just that, I'm not really getting to the depthness of what each of these subjects are. Another thing to include is that through this whole system, we look at the physical practice now. Now, the physical practice that we know of so deeply now has so many different styles. Now, when did the asanas really come into place? That we don't really know of. It's still being, it's still being theorized. It's still coming to some state of research. Now, after the sutras, after the many different beautiful Vedic scriptures, many, many years later came a theory. This theory is known as Tantra. And this came about the same time as Hatha did. They looked at the body as a means of reflection of our internal state. And how if we work into both sides of that reflection, maybe the physical influencing the internal or the internal influencing the external, it creates this unified source where our reflections are leveled into the same extent, the same level of reward, not necessarily reward, but this blissful this super evolved individual where you're growing, you're a higher state. After this term came about, Hathor introduced, I believe it was 10 or 12 poses in the beginning. And these 12 uh, poses weren't really a flow or a transition. It was mostly about holding the poses and inquiring what you feel. What's going on in the body? How does your emotions feel from it? What do you see through your visions? What's the memory that passed by? When you extend in one area, do you feel an emotion? Do you feel anger? And then when it came to knowing the poses more deeply, understanding the poses and the meaning towards them, and for you, we start to transition them. But very slowly, transitioning from one pose to another and just feeling what the transition feels like. And to know that transition in your own day-to-day practice, that's okay to transition, to be at peace with the transition. When Tantra and Hatha both came with this principle of thought that the physical body plays a huge attribute and a deep reflection to what's internalized and the internalization part is influencing and reflecting out, Kundalini came upon. I think it was around the same time as well. Again, we don't know 
the true dates of what came before the other. But we just can conclude a hypothesis of when they did and make that theory. As Kundalini came about, it really emphasized the importance of the chakra system. It really put a lot of emphasis into the breath and rising the serpent up your body. With this, you may ask about the mudras. The mudras came about when Hatha came about. And then there comes this other system. You may know of Ashtanga, the physical practice in itself. You may know of Vinyasa. All these other ones didn't come about to recently in a sense. I believe Vinyasa has only been around for just over 100 years. Um, and the others came about like in, I think it's about 40 or 50 years old. So you may ask, how did this all happen? What is the true yoga? The true yoga is taking into consideration that your mind is not well. And it's playing effect into your life and into your body. Or vice versa, however you look at it. As we start to study the mind, as you learn through parts of Raja Yoga, Karma Yoga, you start to become aware of all the walls you've been grown into. And those walls come crumbling down into a vision of expansion. As you know of this, through your experience, you might unfold what comes from this. And that's the evolvement of yoga. The more people that practice the mentality, knowing that game change, knowing how to decipher their experience, and what makes them feel even closer to God, that's what's evolved into now. And all the multiple of different practices and styles Because yoga is transformation, it's evolvement, includes many aspects of your life, includes bringing your mentality, bringing your emotions, bringing your spirituality, bringing your physical body. But to not look at the physical as an exercise, look at it as an opportunity to devote your time and feel God through the senses of your body and even deeper. There's so much more I want to talk about here because it includes an even deeper, complex system. And I want to get deeper into the terminology for you and all of its meaning, like the yamas. What's in the yamas? What's in the yamas? What's all the chakras? But this whole conversation could go on for a time. And it may be longer than an hour. Yoga is a medicine. It's a remedy in a sense. It allows you to build a relationship with where you are in your life and move from that and evolve that relationship to something bigger. 
It's a lifestyle. Another thing to include, you may have heard of Ayurveda and the different doshas. Ayurveda came before, I believe, Hatha system and the Tantra system, or just around the same period. Ayurveda speaks about a lot of the pace of our physical movements that we should be taking due to our body form and the balancing and the constitution to balance and pacify what we have, but also mainly includes food. Food is a big one. It's our source of energy. Not just prana, that pranayama is a big one, of course, but what's secondary is food. We need both in order to live. So Ayurveda introduces you to the different types of food that either suit to you or don't suit to you. And to know of that and be conscious of that. Also within the sutras, it speaks about three different layers of what food or energy indicate and how they play a role into some kind of influence or result. So for instance, there's sattva, and there's two others. For some reason, I'm forgetting it because I just taught two classes, and now all of my terminology is a little bit loose, and I feel somewhat high. But these different components indicate some form of result in your body, in your mind, and even your connection with God. So it speaks about the three components. The three components, one being almost like a low, dark energy and how that plays a role within your body and how it disconnects from you, from your spirit to your soul. Another one is indicating that these certain foods will help ignite your connection to God. And another would be almost in the middle. It may seem good, but it actually isn't connecting you. It's doing a little harm to you. So these three components speak widely about being conscious of what results you get from what you take. And so when Ayurveda came around, it really, really flourished that concept in a way. So that's where Ayurveda comes into place as well. So food your mentality, how you treat yourself. There's so many different layers and aspects to what makes yoga. That's why it's so hard for people to even put into terms of what yoga is because it's such a complex system. But yet when you practice them, you understand it being so simple. Again, I'm sorry for forgetting my terminology Again, sometimes when I teach classes, my mind is just completely blank and I forget my words. And I'm just really horrible pronunciating Sanskrit terms. But this whole thing, I want you to know about the intensity of what yoga is. It changed my life. It became my medicine. It became my remedy. 
It transformed me. And guess what? I'm still in another layer of that. After have, having done what I did in the past and transforming through this big wave and becoming who I was, now there's this other wave. And that's the beauty of yoga. You're always having to encounter some aspect of yourself to heal. This aspect of yourself to heal your relationship with and flourish from that. I would love to speak further about this and maybe in the future I will include a whole conversation of the Gita and another day a whole conversation of the chakras forever. But as of right now, I'll leave you with these loose terms, these loose little meanings. I hope that you grasp some kind of idea of what yoga is and that it's not an exercise. It's not a fad. It's not a trend. It's not this hippy-dippy spiritual thing. It is spiritual, but it's a complete lifestyle. It's not something to showcase and be trendy of it's something deeper than that it's rich it's of high quality yoga changed me so much that i received this high divine godly message that to honor my experience and to honor divine is God, whatever you see it as, whatever I see it as, by serving others who would love to use yoga as their medicine. Yoga unearthed me. Yoga truly unveiled who I am beyond all the pain, beyond all the anger, beyond all the layers I waited upon myself being confined into the small space of who I thought I was, to shedding off the layers, tearing them apart, looking through the cracks, demolishing the walls, and finding who I am beyond all of it, at the deepest core. Now I'm here to give that to you to offer surface for you, to use yoga as your remedy too. Thank you deeply.